Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome to the Addiction Connection, which has been hijacked by COVID-19. As has everything else, it seems, in the world. So today, uh, we started our own club, because (laughs) no other club will take us. And we are going to do a little bit of a literature review slash journal club. Uh, We really... Got all, we were reading all this stuff, and what do you do with it? And no one wants to listen to us Everybody, at home. Everybody's sick of listening to us tell them facts. Yeah, at home, at work, no one wants to know. So we're just praying somebody out there actually listens to this, which I think is probably unlikely. <laughs> just think of this as you know a journal club without all the fancy, brilliant things. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through five days of some of the bigger literature that's come out, some of the bigger articles, some of the most crushing, crazy things. Sounds good. Go for it. Well, we'll start back with May 11th, some of the things that came out then. And I think we're uh, we're going to start with the smell troubles. The smell troubles. So Lee et al. had looked through, this is from the Journal of Korean Medical Science, so... Obviously, we read that journal, too. Um, but he found that that loss of smell and taste, so anosmia and aguizia. Anyway, so he looked at the loss of smell and taste in the patients that were hospitalized uh, for COVID in Korea and found that the loss of smell or taste was observed in 15.3% of all the patients in the early stages and even in 16% of patients that had asymptomatic or mild disease severity. And I know when this journal came in my mailbox, uh, I think I was surprised to find out that that most of the patients they were seeing with this, it could be used as an early detection, which is interesting because some of the patients I've had with COVID already, it seemed like it was more towards the middle. But uh, that's, in, I mean, they, when they first presented, didn't have it, but it developed. So I'm not sure. Yeah. More data to come. There you go. And ironically, more of these people were women. Is that just because women have, you know, kind of like they see more colors, they they smell more things, and so they notice when their smell goes away? Men don't care. <laughs> uh, then we, the, the next article um, from Hepatology Research um, came out talking a little bit more about the different labs that we see in infected patients, patients who are hospitalized with COVID. And, you know, there's not any smart set for COVID. I mean, there are a lot of hospitals that probably have developed a smart set for COVID. I don't think ours has yet, Um, maybe in a couple months. But some of the labs that they're finding, um, especially looking at the liver, AST, ALT, bilirubin, and albumin, abnormalities in these tend to be in patients with the more severe disease. Yeah, and that's. I think that's been mentioned a number of times in different studies. But this was a this was a meta analysis, so lots of different studies kind of pulled all together. Yeah, so we'll talk more about that as a, they talked about it a few times last week. So we'll get back to that as well. And next in the next up, we got Milligan and Sella. Uh, this is actually from May 9th, and it's uh, something about the impact of essential workers in the context of social distancing for epidemic control. 
So interesting little thing that talked about what we consider essential workers like cashiers, factory employees, and healthcare workers, and kind of what the difference is uh, between uh, how often they get ill and their spreadability. Is that a word? Spreadability. Transmissibility. Transmissibility. So uh, really when they when they looked at this group, uh, these uh, high interaction workplaces such as these manufacturing and food processing facilities uh, or those with high exposure to infected individuals such as healthcare uh, are really the highest individual risk for infection. But it's interesting every time I go to the grocery store, I think, oh, that's the person that's going to get it, the cashier. But they're not. Not as much. Not, not as, as often. Much. Not as much. Not as much. But those patients, which they call the or people, they call the public-facing workers, so these cashiers, ironically, like we said, they're, they're not getting, their risk isn't any higher. However, they have a bigger impact on actually spreading it. Um, so if one of them is sick and they're still working, yeah, you don't want to be in that line at the grocery store. The next one, and we're going to move to some of the papers that came out on May 12th. And uh, there was an interesting one that was actually by Lally, L-A-L-L-I-E, May 11th that came out, the rapid and extraction-free detection of SARS-CoV-2 from saliva, spit. And what they decided was that, let's face it, uh, we don't have a lot of PPE to you know, to swim around in here. So we got to try and save it. And one of the things that they talked about was if you're doing saliva swabs, well, that doesn't really require using... A swab. <laughs> well, no, require, require using a PPE. <laughs> because they don't need to be swabbed. Well, that's true too. They just spit. Yeah, they just spit. And so they don't need, you don't need a swab and you don't need a PPE. And maybe this would help us uh, save some of this stuff. The problem being, which will come up later, is that maybe not as accurate not as sensitive and you know this study did show um high performance but i don't know if it was just the specific type of assay he used um but yes clearly it limits the number of people who have to come in contact but and then we go to the ever famous thing we said we would never ever talk about again uh the h drug the h drug for those of you who are luckily listening to us for the very first time, we are referring to hydroxychloroquine, which we will forever refer to as the H drug. Why people keep talking about it's like it's like the Kardashians. Why do people keep talking about them? Well, There's, don't get me started on reality <laughs> TV because I could talk about them for a while. So the reality is that uh, they've done studies with hydroxychloroquine, H drug, and they've done them with azithromycin. They did them with combinations. How'd that turn out, Heather? You know, and this is JAMA. So this is legit. This is JAMA um, and Rosenberg et al. put this all together. But basically, kind of like we mentioned at the end of one of our podcasts last week, is that greater odds of cardiac arrest in patient receiving combination therapy with the H drug and azithromycin. But um, abnormal EKG findings, cardiac arrest, all of these things, just don't use it. Yeah, seems like a problem to me. An interesting azithromycin alone uh, was associated with a non-significant lower risk of mortality, cardiac arrest, and abnormal ECG findings. So, By itself, it's not bad. But hydroxychloroquine itself associated with a higher likelihood of mortality and adverse cardiac out outcomes. And the addition of azithromycin 
may increase these risk factors further. So that is ironic, though. More is not better. Right. But why is it worse with azithromycin with it when azithromycin by itself does not have it? The long QT probably. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I'm avoiding it. I'm throwing mine away. <laughs> so then we, we moved on um, to a, wow, a lit review. Um, Veronese Yeah, from, from the Frontiers in Medicine. There we go. Probably like Idaho. It's like the Frontiers. But they did this little study where they looked at the corticosteroids because, you know, we're all kind of debating are steroids good or bad. Um, and really, overall, it was mixed. And they were detrimental in two out of the four studies that were reviewed in this lit review. One study of those four did find that methylprednisolone could lower the mortality rate by 62% among patients with severe covid yeah, However, but, that is they didn't go into much of the details about the different types of studies in which studies said that. Um, and how many patients were in that one. Correct. So one out of four studies said it could help, um, two out of four detrimental. At this point, I think it's kind of that last ditch. You have severe ARDS and you're following those protocols. The next study that was actually in Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness, I'm, I know I'm getting that journal too, uh, by well, yeah, because by Bosch. I'm sure that our disaster pandemic doctor, Dr. Hick, probably is the editor for that he, journal. He's getting this. And Bosch et al., uh, it was interesting, and I think this really hold, is something that Heather's got to look into because <laughs> one of the problems is that uh, a lot of the sites that talk about COVID for patients are above the 10th grade level which is going to make it hard for uh, old Dr. Bell here to read. Mm. So I think that that's really important that um, that a lot of the information and the education we have for patients, it has to be a level where uh, a majority of people are able to read it. Yes, so, even one one of the the tests that they did on, on the Google search showed that one of them was graduate level or higher. Um, so definitely Kurt is not getting that journal. Let's move on to May 13th and some of the articles that came out. And uh, first was a retrospective cohort study. Uh, and I wanted to do this one because I think it's just interesting by Meltzer et al. And this uh, actually is talking about vitamin D. And I found it interesting that if you looked at patients that had a vitamin D deficiency in the past year, uh, this was uh, associated with an increased risk of testing positive. And Gosh, I don't know what you want to get out of this. There's just so many things. Well, there's so uh, they, many different questions because you'd think a person who's got low vitamin D is probably not outside in the sun and therefore either sitting at home all by themselves, therefore having low contact or sitting in a bar, sitting in a bar, a restaurant or in a venue. So and maybe they don't eat, eat healthy. They don't take any multivitamins. It could be that they were unhealthy to begin with. Uh, I'm not sure it means we should all that we all need to get sun, but. Uh, certainly interesting. And then moving on to Salazar. And of course, this was mentioned last week also on the podcast by everybody's favorite, Dr. Amanda Nasca, this study showing the convalescent plasma therapy um, among 25 patients in Houston who received the convalescent plasma therapy. Um, basically, things people did very well, uh, clinical improvement, and 11 of these uh, patients of 25 were discharged Um 76% had an improvement, and you know, I said only 11 were discharged because you know, the study hadn't been completely finished yet. But she did note last week that all these patients also received another medication with the convalescent plasma, so it's a little bit harder to say, yes, it's perfect. 
So stay tuned because I'm sure there's going to be more studies coming out soon with just the plasma. And then on May 12th, we had uh, something come out in the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. It's a little uh, a little little thing about uh, this meta-analysis of 35 studies talking about some of the GI troubles, uh, the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea. And it's interesting that they were talking about how this is about uh, 15% of the patients when Honestly, I remember seeing some of the stuff out of China early on. It was more like 5% or 3 mm-hmm. to 5%. And uh, now they're saying 15% and whether or not that's a mutation here. Um, but it's interesting when you look at the prevalence of abnormal liver functions, and we she actually talked about this a little previously, uh, that this is, uh, you know, this is typically a higher pre- prevalence of complications in this particular group. And I think one of the other studies showed higher mortality with the elevated liver functions. So... Um, this Mao et al. I think Mao has written like a thousand papers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm almost as smart as we are. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think one take home from that is it's, it is important to watch the liver function. And, you know, on our echo last week, Dr. Aurora, who is, of course, a hepatologist, talked about severe liver disease and COVID as well. And just remembering that this, although it seems to be a primarily respiratory issue, it is a multi-system inflammatory potential issue. So don't forget about the rest of the body. Yeah. And next was uh, May 12th in The Lancet. The Lancet. Bangery. Uh, I want that. Or Banner. Banerjee. 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 Et al. Anyway. But they had a little study about, uh, you know, really the demographics of our country here where when you look, 20% of our population is really high risk because they're over 70 Or they're less than 70 years old, but they have at least one underlying condition, which we know, of course, is heart issues, lung issues, diabetes, immunocompromised, smokers. Yeah, and basically in this group, the one-year mortality, 4.46. That's kind of high. That is kind of high. So that's, uh, that's where in Minnesota a lot of our deaths are coming from, typically in that group in the congregate living. Mm Mm-hmm. So then, you know, we've had, of course, like everybody else, transition to kind of this telehealth thing, doing more uh, telehealth visits. And um, Margulis at at all. Yeah, I, I have a hard time with all these names, but really started to look at the effectiveness of doing and the safety of doing telehealth visits. Uh, and they found that patients that had likely COVID or uh, this COVID hotline of these patients were actually told to self-isolate at home. And this was 4,213 calls that they looked at. And so a vast majority of them were, of course, in that mild to, you know, very mild symptom kind of category where they were told to stay home. Um, Some of them, 14%, were told that they were unlikely to even have COVID. And only 3% of this huge population was advised to even go to the ER and... um, 7% 7% of them had to go back a couple of times to the ER, but only 1% of those patients of that 4,200 patients were even hospitalized with this COVID diagnosis, which really just shows how you can conserve resources, uh, limit exposure to the healthcare personnel, limit spread by this patient being out, and how it is a little reassuring to me anyway that this can be managed at home in a vast, vast majority of situations. I think they probably tried to make this study really consistent. So it was actually the same guy that answered 4,200 calls. No, that's not true. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. It's like, imagine sitting there, 
4,175 calls I've taken today. Well, how did they do, how did they cut it off at 4,213? Yeah, just that's when he died. <laughs> I'm not answering the phone call one we more time. We do not have any any kind of factual stuff with that. Yeah, that's not true. So if we move to May 14th, Rocher, and this was looking at school closures and how this has impacted the spread. And what they found, this is an early study, an ecological study, that when you look at earlier statewide school closures, that it was associated with fewer COVID-19 cases and deaths per capita. So if you close your schools earlier, so the statewide cases were 2.7% higher and deaths were higher by 12% for each additional day that schools remained open. So I guess I don't know how they compared it state by state when it hit the coast first or what they exact looked at, but they stated that the schools that closed right away had this uh, fewer cases, fewer deaths. I just never knew that there could be such a consequence to going to school. Just a thought. That's because you never went. Probably not. So, <laughs> so the next the next one uh, up was actually by Fu F U at Al May twelfth, and this is uh, in the European um, Respiratory mm-hmm. Journal. Um, and this was a interesting little study about, and I kind of like this one because it talks about the shedding and what people shed more virus and what people shed less virus. So. Yeah, so patients, what they found is that um, patients with coronary heart disease had a longer duration of viral RNA shedding. So the worse your heart disease, the more you're spreading virus. Patients who had a good albumin um, spread the disease for fewer days. So lower albumin, more days. Mm. Mm. You know, it seems to make sense because if you think probably if you if your albumin is low, you're probably didn't get, you probably didn't fight it off as quickly. Right. And if you got heart disease, you're higher risk. You might have been had more severe disease, so you you shed longer. So some of that stuff is probably just looking at the same problem a little different way. Mm-hmm. And then if they got the antiviral therapy within seven days of that symptom onset, and you know we had talked about this last week as well, that the earlier the better as far as getting that remdesivir and the antivirals, um, the shorter duration of the shedding as well. So getting that on board earlier um, did better as far as shedding that virus, which also makes sense. Mm. Yeah, then on Kurt's the trying uh, to still think about that virology of that. Yes, oh, these guys' names are tough. Malier and Villon. Ooh, Villon. This was in the Journal of Surgical Infections. Yeah, and this is really important now because as of just a few days back, we started doing surgeries again in our facility, and one of the concerns, of course, is what do we do with patients who get symptoms of COVID right after surgery? And this pretty much says what you should do with them. Well, and even just any kind of post-op complication, you know, they said that COVID would present very similar to every other post-surgical complication, but that the one thing to add, if any of your post-op patients start to develop any kind of abnormal symptoms or start to have any kind of complications, you really need to get this chest CT and that that would be diagnostic of COVID. Um, and in this study, um, five of these patients, and this was a very small study, um, just eight patients that they had looked. Oh no, I lied. Forty-six patients, excuse me, that developed these um, post-op issues. Five of them required ventilation, mechanical ventilation, and two of them died. So I think getting that to be able to get that COVID diagnosis right away um, is what's important. It is important. And <laughs> the last day, May fifteenth. May fifteenth. Some, some of the little stuff that came out that day. 
First one was about saliva testing, which we just talked about a little bit ago. So this is just shows how fast everything with COVID is changing because yeah. this is what, four days later. Yeah, and they talk a little bit about how they're about 15% less sensitive in a community-based uh, diagnostic setting. So, you know, I think that we all would love to to do these uh, because, again, they're not aerosolizing. You don't use a swab. You just got to spit in a cup. And, uh, you know, I think the other thing that they talk about is how they're less sensitive if you're more convalescent. So the farther you are in your illness, the less likely the, the spit is going to be to uh, come back positive than a nasal swab. Because saliva is not the same as sputum. Correct. I hate I hate saliva yeah. and sputum. And if you so. could cough one up, then you could probably get a better sample. But so this is strictly saliva testing. Saliva, don't hock a loogie in your saliva <laughs> test. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so then we moved on to the Journal of Medical Virology. Huang et al. Um, talking about hypoalbuminemia. Again, this is now the third time in one week we're talking about the importance of these liver functions and the albumin and all these things. And that, again, this retrospective cohort study found considerable difference in albumin levels between survivors and non-survivors of COVID. Um, that hypoalbuminemia, yep. say that 10 times fast, was a predictive factor of mortality with an odds ratio of 6.4. I mean, that's... Everyone start eating your protein, get your albumin levels up. Yep, lots of bacon and eggs. Um <laughs> and then give yourself heart disease so you're also at higher risk. Yeah, and you'll shed forever. Uh, so then Kretz, ooh, wow, Kretschmar, ooh, May 15th. Mm-hmm. He had a little paper, Time is of the Essence, Impact of Delays on Effectiveness of Contact Tracing. Ooh. This is good. Yeah, you like this one. You? I did. So it's this whole thing about how quickly can you get a test back and at what point do you start tracing who who is really getting around this patient who ends up being positive. Well, this goes back to, I think, one of our very, very first podcast slash echo slash anything COVID-related when we decided that addiction doctors should take on COVID. Back to that whole r not and the whole transmissibility and reproducibility and that whole concept that in order to get rid of a disease, you need to have that r not less than, less than one shows that this is going to fizzle out. So they basically stated that you can get to that point, you can get to that point as long as all of your tests are coming back within three days. Any delay more than three days and even getting results, just the contacts go up and the transmissibility yeah. goes up. And I think if you walked into one of the big stores in our town that's huge and sells everything, you'd think the r not was about 17 because no one's uh, just social distancing at all or wearing masks. or So, yeah. Are not less than one if we want to die out. All right. And then uh, more public health policy in this this new journal that we're now subscribing to that we didn't know anything about prior to COVID, um, MMWR. I just, that's just a really good journal. It, you know, this is the one that looked at the, the cruise ships and everything, yep. um, you know, back in the day a month ago. Um, Olson et al. really looked at these seasonal periodic models and they looked at all these deaths in New York City and that 24,172 out of 32,107 deaths. I felt like I should say the numbers because those all represent actual people. So I didn't want to round. That's important. Anyway, so 75% of these deaths in New York City from March 11th through May 2nd were in excess of what have been expected. So of those deaths, of those 24,000 excess deaths, 
57% were lab-confirmed COVID-associated, whereas 21% of them were probable COVID-associated, which goes to, to bring up the question of what about these remaining 5,923 excess deaths? So this 22% excess deaths, where did they come from? You know, whether they're directly or indirectly attributed to the COVID pandemic. Yeah, you know, didn't want to go out, didn't want to go get the meds. Didn't want to go to the ER, so stayed home and had a heart attack. Right. And then, you know, I guess sadly, if you think about what's coming up for our COVID echo this week, you know, suicidal things, homicidal things, I'm sure that was all in there as well. Probably plays into it. So, yes, with that nice little transition, uh, this Tuesday on COVID echo, we are having kind of a smorgasbord of people talking about domestic violence and the COVID know what's happening with all these people at stay-at-home mourners orders and what's been going on and what's going to happen as um, and how as physicians can we uh, really recognize uh, when things aren't bad on a telemed even you know how do we know that something's not going right at home and then we will also be joined by the Charlie Resnikoff on that same day talking about substance use disorders in the world of COVID so different things that have been going up, down, how the prices of street drugs and regular drugs have changed, and and really how even if you're not an addiction provider, you can start to recognize some of these things that um, could definitely be negatively impacting your patients. And then Wednesday on the Addiction Echo at 1215, uh, hold it, it's me. It's you. I'm talking about uh, heritability and genetics of alcohol use disorder, and I'll be delving into the life of Dr. Rush, the first person to ever kind of think that this whole alcohol use disorder could be genetic. There's also squirrels. And yeah, he's <laughs> he's uh, an interesting character in history. So we'll be talking about that. All right. Then Thursday, some postmortem things in the COVID world. But with that, we hope you had a great weekend or whenever you decide that you're listening to this. But Yeah, and if the band wants to kind of plug in over there, start playing. Battle Lakes. See y'all next week. All right. Thanks again. Thanks for listening.